Thursday morning at pregame.com. Gil Alexander, your betting dork. 24 hours, less than 24 hours away now from the beginning of the World Cup from South Africa. The single most bet-upon sporting event in the world. That's right. Super Bowls, NCAA tournaments, hard to believe from an American perspective, but those are jokes compared to what we're about to enter in terms of worldwide betting. Nothing is bet upon as much as the World Cup, and nothing in terms of World Cup history will match what we are about to get into with the 2010 version starting tomorrow with the Mexico-South Africa match. Of course, South Africa getting into the tournament on the host's free pass in. So can't wait for the World Cup to begin. And to that end, we're going to talk about the two single biggest factors in World Cup wagering today. Two big factors that stand above all. One relates to totals. One relates to sides. And that is going to be the two main things that folks look at, and I'm talking pro bettors, look at when betting the World Cup. Before we get into that, however, and I do want to talk about uh, something that Chad Millman of ESPN brought up about J.P. Morgan bankers doing some quantitative analysis on the World Cup. And you know, as the betting dork, how much when I hear the words quantitative analysis or anything that comes back to an algorithm or statistically driven, mathematically driven, I my curiosity has peaked immediately. So I want to talk about this because I scoured the earth for this item that uh, Chad Millman brought up, and I'd like to sort of talk about that briefly and reveal to you what the findings were in case uh, you are unfamiliar with it about who those J.P. Morgan bankers believe will win the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. Um, have I mentioned that starts tomorrow? Yeah, I think I did. All right, uh, first before that, let's talk a little baseball because obviously, and I'll speak for myself here, I'm in a five-day swoon, a five-day swoon in baseball. We've had one swoon before this season. That was at the end of April. Um, and if you follow the daily thread at the pregame forums, you see the record posted every single day. And so you know that late April was sort of the first tough, rough patch of the season. And I don't know if we can qualify five days, but I certainly have never had a five-day swoon. I've never had a five-day-in-a-row swoon. It's not, by the way, this hasn't, net unit-wise, hasn't approached late April yet in terms of giving back units. But it's still five straight days, uh, three of which have been pretty bad. Um, At the beginning of the season, and this is what I wanted to talk about, the beginning of the season, I talked about all kinds of things to stay away from baseball, and I gave on, on the this week in sports betting show that I did with Dan, the MLB Primer Show, talked about three major tenets of baseball betting, and of course as the season has gone along, you've seen all the sabermetric work. But one of the things that I've also talked about in the background, and, and if you followed closely, you know that I espouse this theory, is that baseball being a six-month sport of intense everyday wagering. All six months are not built equally. I actually talked about this with RJ on the very first Betting Dork Show, where RJ really interviewed me rather than me interviewing RJ. But I talked about how in a six-month season, I really do bet the six-month season 
uh, in three different ways based on the trimester. Now, that's not to say when I say I bet it in three different ways that I discard what I've been doing entirely and move on to an entirely different approach. What I mean by that is I weigh what I do differently based on the trimester. Now, I didn't just come up with that the very first time I ever bet baseball. I've sort of come to that approach over a decade, decade and a half of betting baseball. And what that is is simply this. In April and May, and remember, if some of you who have been here a while will remember this sort of debate on the pregame forums that we had, some cappers stay away in April. April and May, to me, is without question the time where you bet baseball because there's so many market inefficiencies. So what I weigh most heavily in April and May is the fact that lines makers still really aren't hip to what's really going on in the field. That's true of any sport, by the way, early in a sports season. But it's particularly true of baseball, and it's particularly magnified by the fact that it's a money line sport. So the inefficiencies are that much greater when we bet it. It's not just your simple 11-10 VIG sport. So we can exploit that, and we did through most of April, certainly throughout all of May, as May was gangbusters for us. Now, August, September, towards the end of the year, well, we'll get to that in a minute, that's something different. June, July, once April and May gives way to June and July, sort of the dog days of summer, you know, this is when it really does become a grinder's sport. June is here, the sort of new edge off baseball is gone, lines makers have by now obviously had a chance to get their game on as well. They know what's on the field. Lines are that much tighter than they were at the beginning of the season. That makes sense for any sport, but particularly so once again in baseball because that huge gap in inefficiency is now gone. And so if you'll even find this in your handicapping, I'm sure. If you pour over a 15-game MLB schedule or even a 9-game MLB schedule, chances are you're not seeing as much value on a day-to-day basis or as much that seems appealing to you to play as you would have been back in April and May. By the way, that's probably how it should be. If you are seeing as much, I would say tread lightly. You know, be very, very cautious. So my June and July approach is not going to exploit those market efficiencies as much because there simply aren't as many. That's where the stats become extremely important. So June started off very nicely, and now we're in a little five-day rut here, which, trust me, you know, we'll get out of as we always do, because the stats always win out in the end. But my point is, is that you do have to be more careful at this time of year. Uh, It's sort of that statement in baseball. You'll hear um, baseball people say this all the time about winning the pennant. They'll say you can't win a pennant in April and May, but you can certainly lose the pennant in those first six weeks of the season. Well, it's funny, in baseball betting, I would sort of apply that to this time of year. To me, it's essential that you bet in April and May, and come June and July, you better really be on your P's and Q's, and you really have to delve into it, because this is the time of year where you can't win the pennant necessarily, but you can certainly lose it. 
Now, that's not to say we're not about to get back on our horse and climb the Units Mountain, because we certainly are. But if you haven't bet baseball for a long time, this is the time of year that will come back to bite you. That's not to say, oh, you know, certain people here know more than other people. That's not, it's not about that. It's just about it's a very tricky time of year. By the way, when we get to August and September, then my approach is even different again. I sort of have to back a little away from the numbers a little more than normal. Now, again, let me just stress this one last time. This is not about, oh, I only do sabermetrics this time of year. I only do this this time of year. I only do that that time of year. Believe me, sabermetrics for me is still the basis of everything every day of the year. Six months. Every single betting baseball day into the playoffs. That's always a backdrop. I'm just talking about the weighting of each factor. And what I'm saying is you have to really know how that long baseball arc is. April, June, April, May, rather. It's about the market inefficiencies for me primarily. June, July, it really is numbers heavy. August, September, it sort of becomes a pennant stretch type of mentality. And you really do have to be aware of motivations more than ever before because these guys are human. Their motivations, April, May, June, July, are certainly not what they are August, September. And I'm talking about to the good and to the bad. So you just have to keep those three trimesters of the baseball season in mind at all times. Hope that makes sense. Hope that wasn't, you know, in any way, in any way throws you off. I, I think it's a pretty intuitive, pretty logical thing. But again, baseball's unique in that it is such a long regular season. Basketball is too, by the way. But you're not betting every team every day. There's no grind quite like in Major League Baseball. So that's just something I wanted to throw out about baseball. And don't get discouraged. You know, look, hey, you may be having difficulty now as well. Who knows, maybe you're, maybe you're gangbusters for all I know. But if you are having a bit of a swoon right now, hey, if you need to back off a day, do so. But stick to your guns about your fundamentals. If you're confident in your fundamentals and in your process, stick to your guns. This too shall pass, my friend. So let's talk soccer. That's what we're really here for today. World Cup soccer. It begins tomorrow. Again, the single most heavily bet event sporting-wise in the world. Not only sporting-wise, period. Period. The world over. And there are so many ways to bet soccer. Not just who's going to win a match. Not just what the over-under is going to be. But... What's the score of each match going to be? And I'm talking about 10 different options for what the score is going to be for every match. You know, what player is going to score the first goal? There's all kinds of props. I mean, there's a myriad of ways to bet soccer, and there's too many to get into right here. So let's confine it to the single two most important factors to bet on the two single most popular bets, which are obviously to win a match, which team is going to win a match, and betting the total on a soccer match. Those are the two most important things. One last thing before we get to that, though. I had mentioned that Chad Millman of ESPN, who has been very nice to pregame, I know he talks to RJ and VR all the time, he uh, mentioned in one of his blogs the other day about 
a little something that some JP Morgan bankers are doing regarding the World Cup. And as a sabermetrics guy, this of course was fascinating to me. And it makes sense, you know, just from a you know, logical perspective that JP Morgan bankers who deal in markets for a living and have fundamentals when they're dealing in their world would look at something like a sporting event like the World Cup and try to apply those same principles when projecting an outcome. So basically, these guys at J.P. Morgan, and I don't know if they were, I'm assuming that um, these guys were in London, though I could be wrong about that. But they essentially put out something called, ready for this? A Quantitative Guide to the 2010 World Cup. A Quantitative Guide to the 2010 World Cup. Now, how great is that? How fabulous would that be? So I, of course, went on a worldwide hunt, desperately trying to find this. Now, keep in mind, I'm a guy who's reading Soccernomics, or has been meaning to read Soccernomics. I'm cracking it open today, I promise. But I went on a worldwide hunt for this. So basically, the criteria that they based their quantitative analysis on was eightfold. And then that went into sort of four subcategories. I'll give you that minutiae, and then I'll just tell you what the results were. I'll cut to the chase at the end. But basically, they, they, their quantitative analysis was on eight factors. The official rankings, the latest odds for each team to win the whole tournament, the betting trends on each team from the previous six months, results from the previous World Cup and qualifying tournaments, their form from the last year, consistency in the public sentiment for each team, which is a little harder to grasp, uh, team fundamentals, and then their... Uh, something they call the success ratio. But basically, those eight factors were then thrown into four subcategories, and this language was more in terms of the whole business markets world. Four categories of valuation metrics, company fundamentals, market and analyst sentiment, and price trend. And so two of those eight categories that I just mentioned, two were placed in each of those categories, odds and ranking in the valuation metrics, success ratio and consistency in the fundamentals, uh, result expectations in recent form in the market and analyst sentiment box, if you will, ranking trend and probability to win into their price trend category. That's a whole bunch of mumbo-jumbo, I realize, and hard to sort of grasp on a podcast. But essentially, they went into huge in-depth analysis and came out very simply with the following results. Any guesses? They think England is going to win it all. You know, so after all that, what came out in the wash is that England will win in a penalty shootout against top-ranked Spain. And by the way, Spain, the odds-on favorite uh, to win the World Cup at 4-1, to one, no one has looked better than Spain in qualifying. Uh, you know, it's a quantitative analysis. It's done on paper. There's no eyeball effect on this whatsoever. These guys aren't watching soccer, or, or at least if they do watch soccer, certainly didn't factor that in to this. But they have England beating Spain in a shootout. What's curious about that result, yes, the fact that England wins the World Cup, but also the fact that they have England winning in a shootout, because the J.P. Morgan team added a penalty shootout metric to every game in the end. And they had England coming out as like the best shootout team, which is curious because I've heard many others saying that England 
is not at all a good penalty kicking team. So take that for what you will. But flushing it out, J.P. Morgan had uh, the Netherlands beating Brazil in the quarters, England beating France, Slovenia beating Argentina, Spain beating Italy. Then in the semis, they had England knocking off the Netherlands, Spain beating Slovenia, and then England with the big win over Spain on the penalty kicks in the finals to win the 2010 World Cup. We shall see about that. So forgive me about all the uh, geeky language on that. But let's get to the real point here. The two biggest factors in betting the World Cup. And as I said, there's a myriad of ways to betting the World Cup, but these are the two most popular. Makes sense. It's the most popular in every sport, just like we would in football or in basketball. Who's going to win? What's the total going to be? Over or under? It's very simple. So let's talk totals first. Pro bettors consider one factor above all else when betting totals in soccer and in the World Cup specifically. Red cards. You're like, red cards? Why? Red cards, according, now this is according to soccer experts, but essentially the experts believe, and there's a reason for this belief, that the main factor in betting totals in soccer is your propensity as a club to get red cards. The reason is because it costs teams half a goal on average in a 90-minute match. So getting a red card costs a team half a goal on average in a 90-minute match. So the more red cards a team gets, the more likely that a match that they're involved in will go under. Does that make sense? All right. So let's look at the qualifying round, qualifying to get into the World Cup. Which nation's national team had the most red cards? The answer, Chile. Chile had seven red cards in qualifying. So it's interesting, Chile, if you extrapolate, could be a very nice underplay in the World Cup. Chile had seven red cards accumulated during qualifying. Number two, Uruguay, five red cards during qualifying. Chile with seven, Uruguay with five, and the next batch with four, Three clubs, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. So, seven for Chile, five for Uruguay, four for Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. Those are uh, the teams in the World Cup, and of course there are 32 teams total. They got the most red cards in qualifying, and therefore, extrapolated, might be the best underplays heading into the World Cup. By the way, you should also ask yourself the opposite. Which are the teams who didn't get any red cards at all? Well, there's a host of those teams besides South Africa, which, of course, didn't have to qualify, as we mentioned, because they're the host country. But teams that did not get a red card at all, Algeria, Australia, Denmark, Ghana, Ivory Coast, the Netherlands, Nigeria, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, and Switzerland. So... Those teams, again, Algeria, Australia, Denmark, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Netherlands, Nigeria, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, and Switzerland, along with South Africa, which doesn't really count in this case. Those are uh, the teams that didn't get any red cards in qualifying. Now, does that mean they're an automatic over? You know, no. It's a factor. 
But what I'm saying is it is the single biggest factor considered because those teams that got a lot of their red cards, that got a lot of red cards, I should say, Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico, that means something. So you can read into that. Sound flimsy? I don't know. I'm not a huge soccer guy. But what I'm saying is it's a pretty known thing among pro soccer betters that that's a huge factor for them in looking at totals in soccer, which by and large come at around two and a half goals per game, sometimes three. It's a little quirky, a little squirrely sometimes in the World Cup. But again, those are the teams that are the ones to look at. Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico with the most red cards accumulated in qualifying. All right, so what about sides? The single biggest factor in assessing sides in the World Cup and in soccer in general is recent form. Nothing is more important than recent form. What they mean by recent form, of course, is who's hot, who's not. It's very simple. Now, in World Cup qualifying, if you look at the last five matches in World Cup qualifying, you can get a sense of this. Now, I only say you can get a sense of this because it's not the most accurate thing in the world because not everybody's playing the same schedule and a lot of people are playing a much weaker schedule and and some are playing a much harder schedule than others so it's it's certainly not a foolproof exercise but it still remains the single biggest factor uh, when looking ahead and trying to project outcomes of the first matches and beyond in the World Cup so if you go group by group and we'll do that right here right quick Which are the teams that are the hottest and which are the teams that are the least hot coming in to the World Cup? So Group A, let's do this group by group. South Africa, Mexico, Uruguay, and France in Group A. Of course, South Africa doesn't really apply here because they had no qualifying. But the hottest team headed in to World Cup play from Group A is actually Mexico. Mexico is 4 0 and 1, 4 wins, no losses, 1 draw, headed in to World Cup play. They are the hottest team from Group A headed into the World Cup. The coldest amongst the three, and we're only talking about three clubs again because South Africa doesn't apply here, and no one expects huge performances from South Africa. But the coldest amongst Uruguay and France then, well, that's kind of hard to say. I guess by a nod, it's Uruguay. They were 3-1-1 headed into uh, the World Cup play with their draw being their most recent match. I don't know how much you can read into that. That's obviously, um, we're only talking about two teams when talking about the coldest there because South Africa doesn't apply. But Mexico is certainly the hottest team headed in from Group A. Group B, Argentina, Nigeria, South Korea, and Greece. Hottest team headed into the World Cup from that group. Nothing really stands out above the fray. Greece actually, Greece and Nigeria actually were the two hottest. Both of those clubs had three wins, no draws, and two losses in their five most recent qualifying matches. Greece and Nigeria, the hottest teams from Group B. The coldest from Group B is actually, are you ready for this? It's actually Argentina. But there's a caveat to the Argentina thing. Argentina was 2-3-0. Two wins, three losses, no draws. But their two wins were in their two most recent matches. So throw that caveat in there. 
but that's certainly counterintuitive. You wouldn't have expected Argentina to have the worst record in their last five from that group, but yet it is Argentina. But again, keep in mind their two most recent matches are the two that they won. Group C, this is our group. England, the United States, Algeria, and Slovenia, the hottest team. It's England. It's Algeria. It's Slovenia. All four of those clubs, 4-1 and one in the qualifying round. We're actually 3-1-1. and one. So, nothing too cold, but a lot of hot teams in that group. Not a lot you can read into in terms of recent form from Group C. Group D. Germany, Australia, Serbia, and Ghana. Hottest team, Germany. Four wins, no losses, one draw. The draw was their most recent one. But Germany, of that group, clearly the hottest headed into the World Cup. Coldest? Well, toss-up between Serbia and Ghana. Both of those clubs uh, with three wins, one draw, and one loss. Serbia's loss being their most recent, so if you had to give the nod to the coldest, that would be them. But remember, the hottest in A so far, Mexico. The hottest team in B so far, a toss-up between Greece and Nigeria. The hottest team in C, all three, England, Algeria, and Slovenia. And the hottest team in D, Germany. Let's go to the other four groups. E, Group E, the Netherlands, Denmark, Japan, and Cameroon. Hottest team, clearly the Netherlands, 5-0-0 in their most recent five. The Netherlands have won all five of their matches of late. Coldest team, Mm, toss-up between Japan and Denmark. Both of those teams, 2-1-2 from Group E. Group F, let's keep it going. Group F, Italy, Paraguay, New Zealand, and Slovakia. Hottest team in Group F headed in, um, I would say it is Italy. Three wins, no losses, two draws. They're probably the hottest team headed in. Coldest from Group F, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's Paraguay. Three wins, no draws, two losses, including their most recent match, which was a loss. But Italy, the hottest team at a Group F. Group G. The group of death, Brazil, North Korea, Ivory Coast, and Portugal. Although Ivory Coast with some injuries that make them not as threatening to some as they were, say, a month or two ago. Hottest team coming out of the group of death between Brazil, North Korea, Ivory Coast, and Portugal? Without question, Portugal. They have won all five of their most recent matches. Portugal on fire headed into Group G. Coldest? North Korea. North Korea is 2-1-2, and two, headed into World Cup play with their two draws being the outcomes of their two most recent matches. And finally, Group H. Spain, the odds-on favorite. Switzerland, Honduras, and Chile. Not only is Spain the hottest club with five wins in their five most recent matches, they have ten wins in their ten most recent matches. Spain is the hottest club, not only coming out of Group H, but into the tournament. They're red hot. La Furia Roja is what they call themselves. Yes, my dad's family traces back to Spain. Yes, I may be rooting for Spain at some point. That is if they don't act all squirrely. 
but they're the hottest team headed in from Group H. Coldest team from Group H, Honduras, with three wins, no draws, and two losses. Two out of their last three matches have been losses. So Honduras, the coldest out of Group H. But again, recent form, the single most important factor for pro betters when assessing World Cup play. Let me just race through the hot teams again from each group real quick. Group A is Mexico. They're the hottest. In Group B, the hottest is a toss-up between Greece and Nigeria. I'll actually give the nod to Nigeria there because Nigeria has won their last two matches, which Greece cannot say. So Nigeria, actually the hottest team out of Group B getting the tiebreaker, even probably hotter than Argentina, which won their last two but lost everything before that in their most recent five. Group C, it's England. They're the hottest, along with Algeria and Slovenia. We're actually the coldest team in Group C, but there's really no huge gap there in Group C. Everybody was playing pretty well. Group D, uh, it's Germany. They're the hottest team. Group E, clearly the Netherlands, who are 5-0-0, headed in. Group F, hottest team is Italy. Group G, it's Portugal, 5-0-0. Group H, it's Spain, not only 5-0-0, but just crushing over the long term. Again, the undefeated teams in their most f- in their most recent five matches in the entire tournament, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain are the three national teams that come into the World Cup on at least a five-match winning streak. And if you look at the odds to win the World Cup, well, that's there's a reason why those three clubs are up near the top. The Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain. Though the uh, the Portuguese team with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo not getting as much hype this year as they did four years ago. So here are the current odds on winning the World Cup. Again, the single most heavily bet upon sporting event in the world. Think about how big we think the Super Bowl is. Think about how big we think the NCAA tournament is. And then multiply that by a whole bunch, and you got yourself the World Cup. So what are the odds to win the World Cup? Spain, the odds on favorite, 3.7 to 1. Brazil next at 4 to 1. Uh, Brazil, under the radar, right up there once again. Argentina, 7.25 to 1. England, of course, that we just mentioned, 7.7 to 1. The Netherlands, 8.75 to 1. Germany at 14.2 to 1. Italy, 16.5 to 1. France at 19.5 to 1. We mentioned Portugal. Portugal's at 33 to 1, even though they've come in with five straight wins. And again, that recent match stuff doesn't factor in who they were playing, just the results. Ivory Coast that we mentioned after that, uh, at 66 and a half to 1. Where is the United States, you ask? Well, we're not that close. 97 and a half to 1. 97.5 to 1 to win the World Cup. Good luck, United States. It would be great to make a run, though, wouldn't it? That'd be so much fun. Longest shots to win the entire World Cup. Ready? Honduras, North Korea, and New Zealand. All of whom, 1,000 to 1. Don't bet on them. But a lot of value in... Some of those teams there, you know, um, not the United States, perhaps. But when you talk about 
a Portugal at 33 to 1, a France at 19 to 1, a Germany roughly at 16 to 1, excuse me, an Italy at 16 to 1, a Germany at 14 to 1, and a Netherlands at 8.75 to 1, an Argentina at 7 to 1. There's value in there somewhere. You just got to pick the right team. Should be interesting. World Cup begins tomorrow. Hope that gives you a little insight in moving forward with your World Cup wagers beginning tomorrow throughout the next three weeks to a month. Going to be a full month of soccer coming up. I, by the way, will be posting free World Cup picks uh, at times in my baseball thread. So where I usually put free picks in baseball, I will continue to put free picks in baseball, but some days I'll actually also put free picks in soccer. And some days I'll actually have soccer instead of baseball. So check it out on the forum threads. Gil Alexander, your betting dork, little World Cup primer for you. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you tomorrow with Vegas Runner, all things sports, as per normal on Fridays. Thanks so much for listening. It's-